Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Winamp. Subscribe to Security Now and all your favorite podcasts with the ultimate media player. Download it for free at winamp.com. Video bandwidth for Security Now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 257, recorded July 14th, 2010. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 96. Security Now is brought to you by Carbonite Pro, with prices starting at $10 a month, all of your office PCs can be backed up safely and automatically. For a free trial and to learn more, visit CarbonitePro.com. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all your security needs, your privacy issues, all the things that are keeping you safe online. And who's better to do that than Mr. Safety First from GRC.com, the creator of Spinrite the world's finest hard drive maintenance utility, and, of course, all those great free security utilities like Shields Up, Shoot the Messenger Decombobulator, Steve Gibson. Hi, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be with you again, as always. Welcome. We're uh, uh, creeping up on the end of year five, episode 257, moly. so we've holy got moly. three to go. Hex 101. Yep. Now, thanks to last week, see that? See that little, that little doohickey right here? That is my last pass USB key. It's on my keychain, and that is my second factor authentication. Yay, very cool. Thanks to you, I did it, and uh, and I'm really happy with it. It means that I have to uh, stick this into any computer. That, and uh, by the way, I have three partitions, one for Linux, one for uh, Windows, and one for Mac, and I run that Sesame program. So I've been, I, I have to say, as long as I'd used LastPass, and I've been using it for a long time, you taught me a lot last week. Actually, that has been pretty uniformly the feedback that I've received from um, back from Twitter followers. Uh, what I kept seeing was, wow, I've been using LastPass for like a long time and mm-hmm. I didn't know half of the things that yeah. it could do. So yeah. I've started kind of implementing more and also using the password generator, trusting it more. Yes. Well, we've got, um, I'm going to do this week, we have pretty much, I would characterize this Q&A as an unapologetic LastPass Q and A. Okay. There's the, the very first question is one that we've been that I've been trying to do for the last two Q and As, but it, I've always put it at the end because it was kind of a fluffy one. But we kept, you know, we kept running out of time and so never got to it. So I thought, okay, finally this time I'm putting it number one, so we get to it first. Good. Well, so we're it, starting it, a little more on time this time too. Maybe so, we'll have time. Well, and we haven't had technical difficulties so far to e- either, so that's so been good. So far, so good. So everything's working. Let's knock on something. So anyway, <laughs> but we've got such well-informed and smart listeners that they're and, – and the reaction from last week's last past episode has been so overwhelming that there were just a ton of really good follow-up questions, things that I, I actually had notes about but didn't cover – uh, so, some additional things, some very good points that were raised, some, you know, people questioning stuff. So we have, I, I think, even for people who, you know, heard last week's last past episode but weren't moved, um, what we've got is still fundamental 
good security practice questions. Good, so good. even though they're relative to LastPass, um, I think everyone will find them uh, really interesting. Fantastic. And we've got, of course, news and updates and so forth. As always, there's a ton of stuff to talk about. Uh, well, I'll tell you what. I have one commercial. We'll do it uh, before we get to the questions. Let's start with the um, the updates. And I know you like to start with patches. Yes. Well, we have, as it happens, uh, just passed the second Tuesday of July. And everybody knows what that means. That was Microsoft's opportunity to fix things. The good news is there's they fixed four serious, critical uh, remote code execution vulnerabilities. The most significant one is the one that we've talked about now several times, the help center vulnerability, which was being actively exploited in the wild. That was the one where a couple of weeks ago that they... Um, I blogged about it, actually. It was the HCP protocol. Uh, HCP colon slash slash was the way that Windows could could access this help center sort of with its own sort of pseudo URL. And Microsoft's little fix-it button or changing the registry could disable that functionality to protect people in the meantime. Well, they finally, with the second Tuesday of July, have that fixed. So that's behind us now. Um, also, we talked quite a while ago about a problem that had been lurking in the video drivers for Windows uh, Vista and Windows 7 with the arrow interface. And Microsoft's only workaround was, well, disable arrow yeah. until we get it patched. Um, that will definitely require a restart for people because this is the video driver that you can't change on the fly. So um, that's been fixed also. And then there was a uh, an Office ActiveX vulnerability that was remote code execution that had been privately reported to Microsoft, not being exploited in the wild yet, and an Outlook vulnerability, both that allowed code to be executed remote or remote code to be executed locally on your system all of that's fixed so you know your standard let's update windows and uh and definitely reboot is like is that microsoft says definitely if you're running vista or windows 7 um, maybe if you're not um and i'm i'm i've got these updates pending myself because for me rebooting my system is a is a <laughs> is a is a workout so I will uh, be doing that probably when I'm through the podcast. I didn't want anything. I didn't want to risk anything not coming back up uh, in time. Um, Chrome continues to move forward. Uh, last week we talked about it moving to three seven five point eight six. We're now at three seven five point nine nine. Wow! So just uh, there were four other memory corruption uh, corruption related bugs. Again, Google's not telling us very much about it. We know that it involves scalable vector graphics, that is the SVG format, and the portable network graphics, PNG formats, and also CSS style sheets. So they've fixed that, and as you commented last week, probably silently updated people. I did fire up Chrome and verify that, yep, it uh, it was now at, at 375.99. So uh, that's been fixed. I like in, that. I never have to think about it. It just does it. Yeah, but it just does it for yeah. you. In security news, I wanted to note that there's a new DNS service that has popped up from a, some friends of ours, uh, Alex Eckleberry and Sunbelt Software. Yeah. 
have something called Clear Cloud DNS, which is specifically designed to protect people. We've talked, for example, about Open DNS in the past, where where they can they can protect your computer if you use their DNS service, because the first thing the computer has to do is look up uh, domain names. That is, unless the bad guys use IP addresses, which they could certainly use. But typically, they're, you know, spoofed domain names like, you know, paypal.com instead of PayPal. You won't notice that it's an O instead of an A, You'll, and then they'll, they'll, they'll take you somewhere. Well, what, what um, Sunbelt Software is doing is being proactive about not listing the DNS addresses of, of known bad sites. So malware that assumes you're just using regular DNS may use a trick like paypoll.com to try to get you to go to a bad site. Um, it won't be listed, for example. It's just not available if you use ClearCloud DNS. Uh, for those interested, the IP address of their DNS server, and they, they only give us one at this point, is 74.118.212.1. Of course it is. So, <laughs> or just go clearclouddns.com, um, all one word, clearcloudDNS.com, which will take you to the site that Sunbelt has set up. And I also noted in the news. So, what that do, you, do you think? I mean, is this a worthwhile thing if I'm using OpenDNS to replace OpenDNS? I mean, is uh, that- I. Um, I don't think I, I added it to my benchmark the other day oh, just to see how speedy it was, mm-hmm. and it, it wasn't really very fast at this point. That well, is now it's going to really be slow because you just told a million people about it <laughs> compared to the things that I've been using. Right, uh, the benchmark now knows about it, so it'll be it'll it'll, it'll list it there. There, I think they're ju- they're just starting up. They talked about, in fact, some of the the pages on their site still just has 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 like gibberish text ah. paragraphs where someone <laughs> Laura dropped some stuff wow literally dropped in some boilerplate wow. just to sort of you know they're still working on their site so this may be a bit of a pre-announce of where they are so i wouldn't give i mean and i would imagine they'll have maybe a second ip address cuz you know dns servers like to have two so that you've got some redundancy right. and and backup so but that's on its way and uh we'll we'll keep an eye on them and Sunbelt just got acquired by, I guess, a large company. I think it's GRI, someone I had never oh, interesting. Th- had been on my radar before huh. because of their Viper, V-I-P-R-E technology. Apparently, it was what they, they, the acquiring company wanted from them. Viper is so, pretty cool. I don't, yeah, yeah, I don't know what that means exactly, yeah. but uh, hope, hopefully Sunbelt will stay pretty much as it is because, you know, they're doing a great job. Well, when you buy a company for something that they do... Uh, you probably aren't going to change it a lot unless they wanted to make their own antivirus. I don't know. That's interesting. I don't know. Yeah. And uh, Facebook uh, is now in trouble with Germany. Uh, you know, the German government has very strict privacy or Germany has very strict privacy laws and the German government likes to uh, enforce it. Um, what I saw, I saw the clearest sort of summary in the, in the SANS security newsletter. They said that Facebook routinely asks people who are already members of Facebook to upload their contact lists from their mobile phones and email accounts 
so that Facebook can invite those people to join. Facebook retains the contact information whether or not the people choose to join. Mm-hmm. Even, uh-huh, even though the people have not given Facebook permission to store that information. Hamburg Data Protection Authority head Johannes Kaspar has received several complaints from individuals whose information has since been shared with third parties. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. So, uh, not good. So, apparently the German government is suing Facebook. I mean, it's putting together a lawsuit and going to say, this is not okay for you to do over here. I got to talk about this with uh, Jeff Jarvis, who uh, speaks German, is also very interested in uh, in German privacy issues. And, of course, Germany is the country that's been going after Google Google. as well. And uh, they are... Very privacy sensitive, um, but this sounds like a clear case of uh, kind of violating good practice. Uh, yeah, not good. Um, and then in this one, I just I make my I think my to myself, what are they thinking? Uh, I, I I gave myself the little the little tagline: "We're all comrades here." No, ah. because the news is that Microsoft has decided to share their source code. With the Russian intelligence agency. <laughs> oh, that's in, that's positive. Extending their 2002 agreement. What could possibly go wrong? I know. Just this, this is this really makes free BSD look a lot better Jeez. to me. Or Linux. Uh, extending their existing 2002 agreement, which covered Windows 2K, 2K Server, and XP. Microsoft has just given the Russian Federal Security Service. The, the initials are FSB. The source code for Windows 7, Server 2008, Office 2010, and Microsoft SQL Server. They must must have had to do that. That must have been part of the deal to be able to sell in Russia, right? Well, they, they say, quote, with hopes of improving sales to the Russian state. Yeah, yeah. And then according to the Russian publication Vito Mosti, quote, the agreement will now. This does, okay. Here, listen to this. The agreement will allow state bodies to study the source code <laughs> and develop cryptography for the Microsoft products through the Science Technical Center Atlas, a government body controlled by the Ministry of Communications and Press. I don't know. I did note. Vista was not on the list. I guess even Russia doesn't want this. <laughs> you would not need to tell us how Vista works. We already know, and we don't want it. But thanks anyway, comrade. Give me Windows 7. I'll take that. Oh, wow. Goodness. Wow. Hi. That's pretty funny. No, we don't need Vista. Yeah. <laughs> Let's skip over that one. Could you just, just put like it on the rest- list, please? Because uh, it's embarrassing not to have it on the list, at least. We it's won't like- look at it. Oh my yeah, god, boy. that's very funny. It just, so uh, what does this mean? It doesn't mean that they're going to release a uh, patched version of Windows with a back door for the Russian security. Well, the security community has responded in all kinds of ways, um, generally negatively, feeling that that the, I mean, uh, one um, one UK security researcher was was quoted as commenting that windows have has tens of thousands of bugs and he he feels uncomfortable with the idea that a government would have the source code for 
operating proprietary software because they could use it to find problems which would allow them to leverage what they know against other governments. Okay. I mean, like, find find errors, and, and then, you know, other people say, yes, but you don't need the source code to find errors. You can use, you know fuzzing software, throwing right. arguments at functions and, and find problems that way too. I would argue that the source code does make it easier because if you if you were to throw fuzzing arguments at the API and something bad happened, you could then much more easily track it down having the software source code rather than having to like reverse engineer exactly you know out of the binary exactly what it was that happened so i i I, and this you know the idea that it's going to allow from this quote the agreement will allow state bodies to study the source code and develop cryptography for the microsoft products what does that mean Windows already it already has cryptography but we want the russian government cryptography (laughs) Special kind, just for Special. you. <laughs> you like our cryptography. Oh goodness! <laughs> I don't, I don't know how this is going to end well. We stop. No. It wasn't my idea. <laughs> that's that's really uh, yeah. I mean, look at uh, what the Chinese government did is just mandate we're going to have our own Linux distribution. We call it Red Linux. Mm-hmm. And uh, Linux is already open source. So I think Microsoft's attitude, quite reasonably, is well. It's us or Linux. They're going to get the code, source code and do whatever they want. So, But you'd think that also the Microsoft folks would protect this stuff with like the crown jewels. The source code to Windows is hugely valuable. Uh, they must... Uh, I, I don't know. know. I That's mean, what so, I would be more concerned about from Microsoft's point of view. I would too. I mean, how how can they imagine it's not going to get out? That, the, that some... How can they imagine that, that some purpose that they didn't intend will not be met yeah having released the source code i mean sure lots of good people will probably be looking at it and maybe some good can come from it you know the idea that and well and the other thing too is that they're very they're very open with the fact that they're they're doing it to improve sales so this is they see it as a commercial commercial uh incentive to give the Russian intelligence services Windows source code. I mean, you know, I'm going to keep using Windows, but it does seem worrisome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, from our uh, podcast last week, LastPass is acquiring a new feature because all the LastPass guys were listening to the podcast and my comment about how the um, the additional authentication employed by the grid, which is an optional um, additional factor in multi-factor authentication, how it was useful, but it was a little troubling to me that no one was, you know, that the the grid could be learned over time. Mm. I mean, far-fetched, but possible. And they said, that's a good point. We're going to add a feature to send a person a reminder email when their grid has been used to a certain level, telling them that they ought to um, exchange it for a new one. So LastPass got a new feature as a consequence of the podcast. you're a powerful man. And um, speaking of which, Stina Evansfard, our favorite founder of Yubico, 
has announced also as a consequence of the podcast and the fact that we were mentioning the YubiKey, which does now interface very nicely with LastPass, a 30% discount for between one and five YubiKeys for any Security Now listeners from now until the end of August. What? Say that again? So 30% off the purchase of from one to five standard black or white YubiKeys. How much are they? Uh, good question. I didn't look. Um, so we go to store.yubico.com, store.yubico.com, and simply enter security now, all is one word, in the coupon code field during checkout. And our listeners who do that until August 31, or probably through August 31, will receive a 30% discount on between one and five YubiKeys. So that's like eight bucks or $25 each. That's a good deal. Yeah. That's a great yeah. deal. So thank you, Stina. And, uh, and anybody off. who liked the idea of the multi-factor authentication with, with the YubiKey, um, it's more affordable for the next month and, and a half. And if you're buying a um, hundred of them, that's five hundred dollars off. <laughs> <laughs> no, between one and five. Oh, one up, and five. Up okay, five. <laughs> up to five. White or black? <laughs> and since we last spoke, Leo, Windows XP Service Pack Two, the famous major security update to XP, which turned the firewall on by default. Yes. Which Removed raw socket support from XP and was a major improvement in security. Yes. Support has been officially discontinued. Oh. That's not a problem because we have Service Pack 3 now. And so everyone should have long since moved to that. Come to think of it, I wonder if I did. (laughs) (laughs) Whoops. Because Uh, remember, my Service Pack 3 was a problem for people. Right, 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 right. It was was hard uh, to install. In fact, Service Pack 2 was a major problem. I I I did more radio shows on Service Pack 2 issues than I've ever done. Oh, yeah. Well, because it was an aggressive change. Microsoft doesn't want to do aggressive change. Microsoft doesn't do aggressive change well, which is why Vista was a big thud. And then they worked on fixing it, and Windows 7 may, basically is just a few little UI tweaks, you know, basically the same code. You know, it's not another big change. Right. Uh, but what I did find interesting also in the news uh, while we're talking about Windows XP Service Pack 2 is that Microsoft has sort of stated, confessed, uh, acknowledged <laughs> that 74%, that is three-quarters of workplace PCs are happily still running Windows XP. And they're oh, doing so. Oh, that's not good. On 4.4-year-old 4. hardware mm, yeah. with, no, with no plans to upgrade. Yeah. So I hope they continue to offer security updates for this. Well, Service Pack 2, no. But right. Service Pack 3, yes. Right. And so, so that, that's, you know, I'm sure that the bulk, uh, if not all of those three-quarters of workplace PCs will be using Service Pack 3, and Microsoft will be extending support. I think what's going to happen is Microsoft is going to be forced, just by virtue of the population of Windows XP, not to discontinue it as soon as they would like. I mean, they sure, they would like to get 
And I, you can understand that it's, it's a pain to have to support down versions of operating systems, especially when they're so different, XP versus Windows 7 and, and to a lesser degree, Vista. So um, I don't think Microsoft's going to have a choice. I think they're going to have to continue XP support longer than they intend to because people are just not going to let go of it. I mean, I mean sorry, Windows XP support. Right. I, just, I think that, I mean, XP is a great operating system. It's well, where I am, finally. I'm, I moved from 2000 to XP. Well, to I have no plans to go forward. I'm happy right here. It yeah. works. Well, I mean, I guess if we could pick and choose, I'd say, and you probably agree, stay with Windows 2000, but um, Microsoft doesn't work that way. Right? Eventually, they're right. going to move us right. on. Right. Well, they're going to they're gonna do everything they can, but if, com- see, the problem is, companies that have, Companies right now um, have installed hardware that will not run Windows 7 well. So they're staying on Vista because Vista, I'm sorry, I, I keep saying that. They're staying on XP because XP has substantially lesser demands on, this, on, the, on the hardware than does Windows 7. So the problem is it's ex- very expensive, not only for Windows seven licenses but to upgrade you know for almost five-year-old hardware so that it can run windows 7 well companies have certainly they like you know got a copy of windows 7 ran it on their standard installed hardware and it's just kind of like oh it's like well why Uh. what do we need from Uh. windows 7 (laughs) Uh. well i think we need security patches it's really concerning I mean, I'd like to know what the number of Windows ni- unpatched Windows 98 machines are running out there, sitting in closets in the back yeah. of offices, doing mission-critical networking stuff. You know? Yeah. Um, I did have a neat uh, and sort of fun spin-right story to share. The subject line caught my eye because it was, damn you, spin-right. <laughs> I thought, okay. Ooh, that's harsh. From Eric Gerlach, who says, hi, Steve. I picked up a copy of Spinrite a while ago when I first started listening to Security Now. It's come in handy a few times since then, but never has it frustrated me as much as it did a few months ago. One of the computers at work, a point-of-sale terminal, got the dreaded unmountable boot volume error. Given that it was needlessly... Sorry. Given that it was needed desperately that night... I got out Spinrite and did a run. A few hours later, the drive was running like new again, and the night went without a hitch. I still had my suspicions about the drive, though, and as the computer was still under warranty, I decided to call Dell to get a replacement. When I called them the next day, Spinrite had worked too well. I could not convince Dell, the Dell representative... (laughs) That the drive had failed Damn in the first right. place. <laughs> he said, after many months more of waiting, two days ago, the drive failed again. Once more, right before a busy night. But this time, we called Dell first and got the new drive sent. Then we ran Spinrite <laughs> on the drive to fix it. Curse you, Steve. For making a product that works too well. 
Cheers, Eric. Speaking for the Russian government, we would love to get source code of Spinrite as well. Yeah. Would you mind sending it to us? <laughs> we, would, we would like to add encryption, special Soviet style. <laughs> yeah. Special Russian encryption. Russian encryption. And he said, P.S., I know that using my personal copy of Spinrite for work was bad form, Aww. but I've got a site license in my budget for next fiscal. So thank you very good. much, Eric. Good, good, good. That's a nice. That's a nice story. Runs and the moral of it is run spin right before you call tech support. Exactly. I mean, after you call tech support, after, call after them you've first. Shown them that it, and you convince <laughs> them it's not working. They'll say, "Okay, we'll send you out a new drive." And if you work in tech support, the moral would be, get spin right. <laughs> yeah. Hey, let's take a break. We're going to come back. We've got some great questions and plenty of time to get to them all. I know a number of questions about LastPass. Yeah, stuff. some great stuff. But before we do that, I do want to talk about backup. And, you know, we talk about Carbonite a lot, both on the radio show and in the other shows. And, uh, and, and that's because Carbonite is a great consumer solution. It's automatic backup. It uses, I could talk to you folks because you understand this stuff, AES 256-bit encryption. You control the key, so it's completely secure. 128-bit SSL no matter what. So even if you're at a hot, you know, and this actually is important because people often put Carbonite on a laptop. And Carbonite, whenever it can get online, is going to say, okay, let me trickle up the uh, information. If you're not using the Internet access right now, you know, you're sitting at the Starbucks drinking, uh, I'm going to start uploading, backing up. And that's the beauty of it, but, but, but that's potentially risky. That's why Carbonite always uses 128-bit SSL. So no matter what kind of connection you have, your data is, even if you're not using the encryption, which I recommend, I'm sure Steve does too, your data is protected as it's going up to the servers. Backing up all the time means you're always good. Now, if you're using Windows with Carbonite, by the way, multiple versions, I think uh, three, 90 days of versions are kept. Um, you can get your data by going online anywhere. So uh, even if the computer is dead, is burned up in the fiery uh, holocaust and your backups are all gone, you always have that backup on Carbonite. And that's really the thing to remember. And you can get it even on your iPhone and BlackBerry. They have apps for those, free apps for iPhone and BlackBerry. So, that, but that's the consumer Carbonite. A lot of people love it so much, they're using it in business. Carbonite said, we really ought to do a business version. And that's where Carbonite Pro was born. CarbonitePro.com. You could try it right now, free for 30 days. All of those great Carbonite features, plus a centralized dashboard, one bill, and much more affordable if you're talking about many, many seats that you're backing up. Uh, in fact, Carbonite Pro is probably the most affordable solution for people who want to back up many computers in an office. Go to CarbonitePro.com right now, and you can try it free for a month. We ask you to use um, the coupon. Actually, you don't need to use a coupon code. We're the only people advertising it, so they know it's from us. CarbonitePro.com. And if you go to the pricing tab at their website, you'll see, I mean, what a good deal it is. Uh, if, for instance, uh, you're backing up 30 seats, and each person has, uh, let's say, five gigabytes of data. We're talking 75 bucks a month. I mean, it's really affordable. Ten bucks for up to 20 gigabytes. There's no charge for individual computers, no seat charge. It's just for the amount of data. Ten dollars for up to 20 gigabytes. You can go to 500 gigabytes for 250 bucks. You, you, you really see the advantage. It's very simple. You pay a flat fee for your tier, nothing more. You can always check on the size of your backup through the administrator dashboard so you know where you stand. I want you to try it free for 30 days. Just get a sense of how this is. Go to CarbonitePro.com, and I think you'll be very impressed. I was impressed by I, when I signed up for the trial. I like to try the trials before we uh, advertise them about how supportive they were. I got a lot of emails explaining how to use it. They were, they were really responsive 
this is a good time to give it a try. Brand new, CarbonitePro.com, based on that backbone that is so reliable, that is not brand new, that's been tested, tried, and true for years. CarbonitePro.com, we thank them so much uh, for their support of Security Now. Steve Gibson, I have questions. Do you have answers? I bet I do. <laughs> since you picked the questions. Since I chose the question. I would yes. guess you're not going to put yeah. anything in here. Well, you know, sometimes I take questions on the tech. Of course, I don't, I don't, uh, I don't go through the questions ahead of time. But um, I'll take questions on the tech guy. And I'm proud to say I don't know. I mean, uh, because uh, if you don't know, you should never say, right? But I don't have the luxury you do of having a brain the size of uh, a city. Well... You you also have the chat room and that helps a lot. Chat room is and, my brain, uh, and they are the size of a city, a small city. But but you know the fact is there are so many obscure little corners that you know someone could say, well, you know, what about someone was I saw something about um, how do I get a copy of um, some random audio player that runs under Mac ten point six point two or so? I was like, what? Okay, that's okay. I'm not answering that question. <laughs> no. Well, and no if I had cares. that luxury, I too would say, <laughs> no way. Dan Ducasse in Atascadero, California, a former San Mateoan, as are you, I think. Yes. He uh, is Aragon Don and a Troop 12 member. Is that meaningful to you? Uh, you'll see why in a minute. All right. Dear Steve, I've been listening to you and Leo on the Security Now podcast for several years. I really enjoy the shows. The How Computers Work series uh, has been informative, and in hindsight, I wish I'd taken electronics in high school. As a former Aragon Don, oh, is that the high school? Uh, yep, mascot? that's where the, that's where the portable dog killer episode occurs. And a few years younger than you, I would have probably been one of the first students to take your classes in digital electronics. Isn't that cool? After listening to uh, the portable dog killer episode, that's two forty eight. If you haven't heard it, go back listen, please. We'll wait. Yeah. Go ahead. I wanted to write because you also mentioned the shock machine. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> you were in uh, Troop 12, Boy Scout Troop 12, with my brothers, Paul and Mark, and had come over to our house. Oh, this guy has memories of you as a kid. Exactly. Come over to your house for some reason and brought with you a cigar box. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> with two brass doorknobs mounted on the lid. This can't end well. Back then, you were known for your inventions. And you and uh, my brothers approached me to test out your latest gadget, the Smile Machine. <laughs> Steve, this is good. We're getting some insight. In uh, deep, deep insight. It looked harmless enough. A couple of doorknobs, a switch on the outside, a little battery, some wires, some other junk on the inside. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> you or my brothers instructed me to just hold the doorknobs, and when the switch is pushed, it will make you smile. Sure enough, when the button was pushed, I was grinning from ear to ear. I was also locked onto the doorknobs until the power was turned off. <laughs> it was a great gag. What the heck? Oh, I got to find yeah. out about this. Listening to the story of the sonic gun, the memories started coming back. I remember my brothers coming home from school telling stories of seagulls falling out of the sky and the incident with Vice Principal Archibald. You were educating and entertaining us back then, and you still are educating and entertaining us today. That's so great. Thanks for the memories. Thanks for all your current work. Dan Ducasse. Wow. Do you remember the Ducasse brothers? Oh, absolutely do. Um, That's so uh, great. Well, I think it was Mark who was one of the funniest kids I've ever known in my life. I mean, just, you know, how like sometimes you run across a, an incredibly funny kid in high school 
who's just, I don't know, he just had an amazing, his, his timing was perfect. I mean, he was like a born comedian. And that's, and I very much remember them. And, and it's funny, I'd forgotten Troop 12, but that's the troop that I was a member of. And, and those guys were both in my high school and the same Boy Scout troop. So anyway, I just got a kick out of that. I wanted to toss that in. Do you it want was to the say last... how that worked, the smile machine? Uh, I was fascinated with shock machines. And I, my sister was my guinea pig for most of oh, them. I'd say, sister. here, Nancy, still, hold, she, she hold still likes two. you, right? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Hold these two nails in each hand and uh, tell me if this one is better than the last one. So, uh, (laughs) very minor damage was done. (laughs) So was it like a taser kind of? I mean, it was it was uh, it was I I was conscious of now with the benefit of, you know, 55 years of wisdom, I wouldn't be running current from from one arm to the other across the everyone's heart muscle that seems unwise um although it was very high frequency and um and that would tend not to interfere with anyone's cardiac rhythm so uh you know it's you know like uh tesla coils don't hurt you because they're they're such very high frequency and so it was i was just experimenting with stepping up the the voltage of small batteries using various oscillators and things and uh you know, it was fun. <laughs> so wow. apparently, Impressive. I took took one of those to school also, and we oh, had we geez. were all hold. I had several. I, I don't think maybe I don't think a hundred, but more than several sets of ten. So maybe twenty or thirty people all in a huge circuit, holding hands, feeling this all uh, frozen, all, <laughs> all frozen <laughs> solid. Yeah, they. That's uh, great. Think, it had been one of my early escapades. That's so. the spirit of inquiry, I think. It was fun. No one, no one ever died, so that's good. <laughs> yeah, that's good. I'm, I'm yeah. gonna, I'll, I'll agree with you on that one. Okay. Question two, Mary, the skeptical packet goddess in Sparts, Nevada, still wonders about trusting LastPass. She writes, I listened with great interest to uh, episode one zero 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 zero. Uh, zero. Eight, eight zeros. <laughs> About LastPass. I've been thinking of switching from RoboForm to LastPass, but never had a 100% trust in uh, their model. It's very similar to LastPass. One thing I was hoping to hear from your review was how it's possible to know whether or not their Java-based, JavaScript-based encryption algorithm has been properly validated. Could it be possible they could end up in a web situation? In other words, something that looks right but isn't. Also, is it possible to know whether they might be performing two separate encryptions of user data? They might encrypt once with a key based on the user's master password and separately a second time with their own closely guarded master password, which only the developers at LastPass know. Then, after a short time of collecting millions of user-sensitive data, they could be doing all sorts of havoc unbeknownst to their trusting users. I'm sure it would be nice if they had some kind of independent code review. I'm also concerned they send the user's encrypted data over HTTPS to their servers if their local encryption is done well, then, well, that should be okay for them to send the already encrypted data in the clear. So a user could examine the outgoing data packets to make sure the data local encryption was actually performed. How is it possible to confirm the TNO model, the trust no one model, if we're left to trust that they are performing the local encryption properly? These questions seem to have been left unanswered by your review of LastPass. Good on you, Mary. That's yes. great. Very good. Yeah, and the attention. answer is all good news. Okay. Um, there is a page which Mary and anyone who is similarly curious can check out, which 
my contact at LastPass assembled more than a year ago or quite some while ago. I read in detail a forum dialogue where somebody was similarly both technically proficient and skeptical and wanted to trust LastPass, but needed LastPass to prove to him beyond any doubt mm. exactly what it was they were doing. So the the page is https colon slash slash lastpass.com slash js slash enc dot php. So it's again it's you need to be over SSL. So https colon slash slash then lastpass.com then it's slash and then js as in JavaScript slash enc as in encode dot php. That will take you to a beautiful little standalone page which does no communicating with the internet, which has code that anyone who is curious can examine. It loads a couple JavaScript libraries. I checked it out myself extensively. You can you can put in your your username, which for LastPass is the email address, and your password. Punch the button, and it will then generate and show you using exactly the algorithms I talked about last week. You, the the two, 256-bit key used for logging in and the separate 256-bit key used for driving the AES encryption, then you can put data into either of the encrypted and de or decryption fields and cause that key to be used against AES-256 um, to perform the conversion. So you can validate it by yes. running, it, running it backwards. Basically, you can completely validate it. Now, the other thing that's possible is... The, the the reason they use HTTPS is not because they're worried about encrypting the already encrypted data. As Mary points out, it's been encrypted, so why do we care? It's because HTTPS is the is the only solution per, for providing authentication. We right. remember that HTTP can be intercepted, and you could be subjected to a man in the middle attack. So their client is is using SSL's authentication to make sure that you've got a non-spoofed, non-intercepted connection to the LastPass backend servers. Now, we don't have to worry about that being used to obscure what they're doing because there are several libraries and tools which do allow users, end users, to look at encrypted data. I've got one... Um, that I, I use a uh, and like a lot. Um, and I can bring up the menu here on the fly to remember what it's called. Um, uh, HTTP Analyzer. And it is, um, it's a tool which is able to intercept SSL communications on my own system. It's able to do that because Microsoft implemented the cryptographic libraries as separate modules. So it's possible for something to hook those and show the data that's being encrypted as it's going into Microsoft's encryption library. 
And so it's able, you're able to see the contents of your own local SSL uh, communications because it happens before it gets, it gets encrypted. Microsoft also has something called um, uh, Fiddler, F-I-D-D-L-E-R. Fiddler 2, I think, is, I like is the, the current release. Um, and it similarly allows you to, to intercept and, and monitor these kinds of, uh, this kind of traffic. And th- there was, uh, some discussion of some other similar libraries in this, um, uh, uh, forum thread. So, so this very skeptical person who was in the dialogue with the LastPass guys, he went to the trouble of capturing packets, grabbing wow. the data, you know, dropping, you know, basically recreating from this JS slash ENC dot PHP page, you know, dropped that stuff in, decrypted it, saw what the contents was, verified, the, you know, what was going on. And, and I, about a week and a half ago, followed in his footsteps to do the same sort of thing. So I've seen all this too. So I, again, I, LastPass has no commercial incentive in my opinion for for violating our trust and privacy um they all of their communications can be monitored can be verified they provided all of the protocol for doing that now the one thing i haven't addressed yet from mary's question is what about the the possibility of some sort of web wep um error kind of you know, error. Yeah. And that's what I really like about this is one of the enemies of security, as we know, is complexity. And there isn't a simpler, more straightforward solution than what these guys have done. Simply taking your username and your password and hashing it using a secure SHA-256 hash which is super strong not not now like sha1 which is pretty much too weak to be usable they're using sha256 taking that data that produces a a key which they simply use with aes i mean it doesn't get any simpler than that and and what's beautiful about it is the transparency there just there isn't any room for there to be a mistake they're, they're simply using your credentials to produce a key which is used with symmetric encryption. And so, again, it's just it's clear and clean and, and simple and completely verifiable. Excellent. Moving on to our next question. Question three, a listener requesting anonymity in Boston, Mass. Mentions a LastPass vulnerability, he says due to their password account recovery request system. Steve, thanks for the great LastPass review. If I leave my email account open or somebody knows my email password, then anyone with access to a PC where I have installed and used LastPass can break into my LastPass account. Actually, this is good for me to know because I, in fact, have LastPass on all my computers, and some of the computers, like the ones here in the studio, are left. You know, people can get into my system if I forget to log out. I lately have been doing that. By default, this preference uh, advanced option, so you go to preferences advanced, is selected. Quote, save a disabled one-time password locally for account recovery. At login, if an intruder selects, I forgot my password, help. 
He's taken to the account recovery page to activate your local one-time password and recover your account. The intruder enters my email address and then receives a message sent to my email account, and he gets the option to set a new LastPass master password for my account. I'll vouch for it. This does work. I've done this, actually. This is a weakness that could be resolved by changing the account recovery default to deselected in that preferences advanced area, as I have done manually. This option is presumably set to, set to assist all those people who forget their LastPass master password, but it's a real vulnerability which should be addressed. Um, okay, he's completely correct. And this is a feature which I didn't have a chance to cover last week among everything that we did cover. And so I wanted to bring it to all of our listeners' attention because it is absolutely the case that the LastPass folks cannot decrypt the data that they are share that they, that they are saving for us, storing for us. You you know using the 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 internet cloud to synchronize among multiple machines, which is the which is the cool thing about LastPass: the fact that it's it's so ubiquitous across platforms and devices. They, you know, if a user loses their password. It's over. I mean, there, there is no, they do, they do not have the password. They, you, you would not be able to log into their system because you need your password to, to create that hash, which is used as the login credential, nor could you ever again decrypt the data which has been stored. I mean, you're just completely out of luck. So at some point, I'm, sh- I'm sure People had problems with this. Probably in, in the in the early days of LastPass, people you know contacted them and said, "Gee, I've really been liking your service. I've right. created passwords that I now haven't what? written down anywhere, um, but I've lost my I forgot my pass my master password for LastPass. I need you to tell me what it is." And so they said, uh, "We don't know. I mean, that's the whole point is we don't know." TNO, baby, and so. So I'm sure they had a you know a skull session and did some brainstorming and said, look, um, we we have to have some solution for like optional for account recovery. And so what they came up with was sort of clever. They we talked about how you can create one-time passwords. You can if you know you're going to be roaming around and you don't have other means for doing multi-factor authentication so that using your username and password in a potentially hostile location might create a vulnerability, you can ask them to create some one-time passwords for you. They're annoyingly long, but that's good. You write them down in your wallet or whatever, and you sort of have them if you ever need to log in somewhere scary. So... They said, okay, we can use that by creating a, by for, for everybody by default, putting one of these on there on the machines where they're using LastPass and but we'll have it disabled so that it, it can't be used until, until, our, and until our script enables it. So what they did was, and I've, I t- I've tested it during my getting to know you phase with LastPass, just, just as you had used it in the past, Leo, and it works very well. So you're able to tell them that I've, lo- I've forgotten my password. 
Now, other systems that people are familiar with where you lose your password, you know, they actually have your password. So they're able to, you know, they ask you some security questions or something, and then they reset your account with like a temporary password that allows you to log in and then you change it back to something that you want, which, which means they have access to your data. Well, LastPass explicitly doesn't have access to your data. LastPass doesn't have the ability to give you a temporary password, except that they've pre-stored one if you've chosen this option, or I should say if you've not deselected the option, they've stored one on your machine. So... So um, the, this listener's point is correct. For the maximum security, you should go into the preferences, log in with the web browser, go into the preferences, and under advanced option, disable that um, one-time password stored locally, recognizing that doing so means... They can never help you. Nothing can help you. No, no force on earth can help you if you forget your master, if you forget or lose or somehow get confused with your master password. So I guess I would be a little more comfortable if this were disabled by default. On the other hand, if it were disabled by default and it's just the same as not having it because people who, you know, who, Forget their password would have no way of recovering themselves. So, I mean, this is a tricky one. Maybe I just they turn to, it off. I hope I don't forget my password. <laughs> yeah, maybe they ought to like bring up a special dialogue when you're setting up your account and saying, "Okay, look, there's one one softening of the absolute security here that we've come up with, where." If somebody has access to your email system, I mean, and so, you know, you, you could see all the requirements that have to be lined up. They have right. to have access to the computer where this one-time password is stored. They have to have access to your email account, meaning they have to be able to access that and log into it in order to receive the email at the registered email address where the LastPass folks send a link which is used to activate the otherwise, the normally disabled password. So, you know, they did everything they could to still protect us while giving us some way out. But the very fact that there is some way out creates a, a theoretical potential vulnerability. So you can disable that, but then there is no way out. If you've lost your password, it's over. So now, it looks like it's on a it's a per machine basis because uh, it doesn't seem to save that setting across all the machines. So Correct. you could turn it's it off per, on all the machines plug. except for one machine that you knew no one would ever get access to. For instance, exactly, yeah, exactly. And so, for example, yes, if you were if you had machines where you did not have full tight administrative control absolutely disable it there so this is what i've done i've turned it off on all the machines in the studio but my home machine i'm gonna have one machine where i could if i really got in trouble save it i think that's that's a very good policy okay all right that way you do have a way to recover if the worst happened yep i just have done that i like having the uh, usb key with the uh, multi-factor authentication i think that's instead of a yubikey i could have used a yubikey but this works quite nicely as well yeah, and it's, I mean, and you're able to add it to an existing one. Right. And uh, the price is right because it's free. It's free. Yeah. Yep, yep. 
All right, moving along to our. Although I, we we should mention it's free for the people who have upgraded and are paying the dollar a month, the twelve dollars right, a year, right? Because that is that is a feature that you need to have the paid version for. Whereas the YubiKey, you buy that once, and then that will work with the free, the one hundred percent free version of mm-hmm. LastPass. Mm-hmm. From Renee von Belzen, who uh, lives in the Netherlands and has our deepest sympathy for the World Cup, wonders <laughs> whether LastPass filters out dictionary words. You mentioned that the word, you mentioned the word gibberish a lot. <laughs> I wonder if there's a Dutch equivalent. I bet it's a great word. Uh, when referring to random data in uh, Security Now 256, however, aren't dictionary words a subset of randomly produced strings of characters? Yes, I guess that's strictly speaking true. An infinite number of monkeys typing gibberish on an infinite number of com- you know computers would eventually type all the words in the uh, in the uh, language in every language ever. So my question to you is: What did you find out about if and how LastPass filters out easy to guess passwords? Also, is there a way for me to check the strength of the password independently of LastPass? It does give you a strength meter on it. Yes, LastPass does have a built-in strength meter, which. Um, I didn't mention, but uh, that that's another feature. One thing I did mention that I'll highlight. First of all, I had this exact same thought, which is if you only used characters, it would be theoretically possible for the password LastPass generates to be words, right. which occur in the dictionary, in which case that would not be good. Turns out to be highly somebody, unlikely. Well, very, very unlikely, especially a 10-character word right. where each character is being chosen randomly. The chances of that are 1 in 7.9 times 10 to the 17th Okay, uh, divided by the number of words, words in the dictionary in the that are 10 characters long, which is not many. Right. But the point is their random um, password generator does have a very nice feature where you can specify the minimum number of digits that you wish to have forced into your however long password. So that pretty much breaks the, you know, the pure word dictionary deal. So you, you, you could say, for example, out of my 10 character, assuming 10 character password, I want to have a minimum of four of those be digits, in which case, you know, you're not going to have a, a 100% dictionary match. They can't do a dictionary exclusion easily because they never get the unencrypted words. They, they never get the unencrypted passwords. The only way they could do it would be if they downloaded into your plugin the entire dictionary in whatever language was local to you and then made sure that they weren't choosing any, um, which seems like much more work than it's worth, especially when you could just say, salt this thing with some digits, and, uh, and then the problem's gone. Salt it. I like that phrase. Question five, Ronald Stepp in Enterprise, Alabama. He asked several great questions. Listen to the, as always, Security Now podcast this one about LastPass, which i am now using thanks to you steve one question that kept popping up in my head was what do you do in case of something like the ipad oh this this actually is my question too where uh, itunes or the app store something that isn't a, a website keeps asking you for your password to verify it's really you 
it, it's LastPass doesn't have a plug-in for it. It's not browser-based, and there's no easy way to insert it inside such places on the iPad. So we have to forget everything we know about password security, just not to lose your mind when you exit the application, go into LastPass, bring up your Apple password, in this case, copy it to the clipboard, go back into iTunes, the App Store, and paste it in, which is, by the way, what I do. Uh, is there something I'm missing, or does Apple just not really put any kind of premium on secure passwords? I don't know if you blame Apple for this. There's no. a lot of applications that do this. If an application asks for a password, you got a problem. Hard to believe, especially now as we see an example of what happens when companies force us to keep our passwords simple. Twice in the past couple of weeks, iTunes has been hacked by developers. This is, by the way, a, a true story, although not hugely widespread. Um, I think there was 50 or so, maybe 100 computers that were hacked. I personally have a short six-character password, and I'm thinking of changing it to a 10-character password. I wonder if the YubiKey would work in the USB camera adapter plug for the iPad. It should, by the it way. It does. It does, okay. Uh, just a thought. Also, in passing, my Verizon MiFi has a 10-digit all-number password that I cannot change. Not true, by the way. I know. Okay. Another example of something that worries me. Thanks. Keep up the great work. Looking forward to CryptoLink. Uh, can I say his name? Yes. <laughs> Ronald Stepp, Enterprise, Alabama. Okay, so a couple points. Uh, exactly as you noted... One of the, one of, I don't know if I would call it a downside or a downfall or anything against LastPass, but, you know, it isn't a system which is able to universally provide passwords to, to other applications. They could conceivably um, do that on Windows and Mac on an operating would, system. Yes, I was exactly the point is yeah. that. Certainly where you've got a multi-windowed, multitasking OS, it's much easier to, to, to look up a password in a, either in a, by logging into LastPass and using their um, browser plugin to, to bring up the words or even to use that standalone, the, the, the really cool uh, pocket, uh, LastPass pocket, which is basically a standalone viewer, right. you could... You, you could easily use it very much just like a password vault. And there it's much easier to, to of course, just, you know, you, you, using a mouse to cut, copy, and paste between the two and, and drop it into password fields. With something like an iPhone or an iPad or, you know, a device with a much more constrained UI, you know, exactly as Ronald says, it's a pain in the butt to have to switch applications, go over and, and open up your vault and, and copy it and, and so forth. There isn't a solution that I can see. Um, there, you know, one of the features and security benefits of, for example, the iPad is that it really enforces inter-application privacy so that it isn't possible, for example, to get for LastPass to run things in other apps and, and know what you're doing. They're, they're pretty much excluded, which is why they've created their own browser, that tabbed browser for LastPass for the iPad so that they've got their own browser where they can add that functionality. So uh, it isn't, you know, it, it isn't a deficiency in LastPass. It's only that we would like to use the LastPass technology everywhere, even not for logging into websites, but for logging into other applications. And, you know, on, on OSs, sometimes we can, um, in in situations with limited UIs, there just isn't any good way to do it. Right. Um, and I did want to mention to him. By the way, there's a security uh, risk in pasting it, cutting and pasting it, because then 
your password. Ah, it's on the clipboard. It's on the clipboard. And how often do you clear the clipboard? Uh, not that often. Right. So, in fact, I, the reason I know this is I accidentally passed, pasted my password into a message to somebody. <laughs> and I Very realized, oh, it's sitting and, on my clipboard. Whoops. And, and malware has had a history. One of the things malware loves to do is to grab your clipboard because, you know, you never know what you're going to find on that. Right. It's a nice, it's a nice place where people often put things that they intend to keep local on the machine. Mm-hmm. So that's a really good point, Leo. And and I did want to, just for Ronald's sake, mention, I also have a Verizon MiFi, which I like. And you can change the password through their browser-based interface. You just log into the 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 access point in the same way you do any, you know, home router. You log into it, and one of the things you can do on some of the screens there is just to change that password. Did that immediately change the password and the name. Yeah. Because Although they, they do... To their credit, give you obscure name and obscure password. I mean, it's not you know, it wouldn't be just, a horrible flaw if it if you didn't change it because I think it's different and, for every device. And we're hoping that they're not somehow algorithmically related. Yes, in a, in a we simple are hoping fashion. that, aren't we? Yeah. <laughs> um, I like the MiFi. If, let me know if you come up with a problem with it. I do too. I, I use yeah. it often and yeah. like it very much. So here's one from um, Ken Varga, Stevens Point, Wisconsin. He's got an idea for an alternative format for LastPass passwords. Steve, thanks for the LastPass show. Well done. I, too, switched to LastPass thanks to it. During your show, you recommended having LastPass generate 10-character passwords. I did that, by the way. The default is 8, and I stepped it up to 10, and it remembers that, which is nice. Um, Consisting of upper, lower, and numbers for website logins, and I also did that. Since this provides... 59.5 59.5 bits of randomness to your passwords. You also noted that by having LastPass not include symbols or other special characters, makes your passwords easier to manually type in should the needs arise. It also uh, keeps it from breaking. Some sites won't let you use... Uh, That's actually why I, I, I was recommending ran it. Ran into yes. that right away, yeah. Yep. In that vein, I have a suggestion to further simplify the situation. This is what I did says Ken. In the LastPass generation screen, I tell it to give me a 12-character password using only numbers and lowercase letters. I also check the avoid ambiguous characters box. While I couldn't find documentation on that option, I've experimentally determined that it excludes the numbers 0 and 1 as well as, as, well as the letters I, L, and O. Makes sense. Those are ambiguous. Emitting these characters helps make it harder to misread the password since it's easy to confuse, for instance, the number L with a lowercase L. This gives 31 unique characters for LastPass to work with, and if my math is correct, a 12-character password should provide 59.4 random bits, pretty much the same as uh, your 10-character solution. I find it much easier, less error-prone to transcribe, if needed, than one using uppercase and lowercase characters. That's true, especially if you're on something like the iPad. It's a real pain to shift. Oh, yes. Any thoughts on this? It seems to me that 12 characters is still quite compact, and most websites, even if storing passwords in plain text, (gasps) seem to allow it. As an aside, 13 lowercase letters provide 61.1 bits of randomness and may be even easier to type, but has the problem of not being allowed. 13, just lowercase, not numbers, but has the problem of being allowed on, not allowed on some sites uh, for understandable reasons. A lot of sites, I agree, can say we need a number in there. Yep. What do you think? Um, I checked his math, and his math is correct. So uh, I just wanted to propo- pro- to. Um, suggest that to our listeners mm-hmm. as an alternative because I think he raises some very good points. Um, sometimes I've seen, and I'm sure we've all seen some logons where they specifically say you need some upper and lower case or they're telling you that you need some special symbols or something. Right. Most, mostly, though, they say you, got, you have to put some digits in. 
So I, li- I like that feature that enforces some digits to be chosen. Um, and I did the same thing, you know, on, in, on my own e-commerce site. Uh, we use a, a transaction code which uh, for, for the purchase of my software, which at this point is just Spinrite. Um, and I specifically made transaction codes where none of the letters and numbers look like each other. That is, I exclude any that could right. be confused, which is a nice thing to do. And so uh, I think this, is, this makes a lot of sense to, to say lowercase only and, and then choose the option of avoiding ambiguous characters so that you end up with something which, as exactly as Ken says, if you need to type it in, it's easy to do so. And I don't think 12 characters is too long. It's two more, obviously, than than 10, but still probably within any site's, you know, your password is too long uh, limitation, I would think. Right. So that's a good point, Ken. Thank you. And it is a very easy way to kind of ensure that you're not using a dictionary word if you say you have to have a number. Because as far as I know, very few dictionary words have a number. Right. Some do, I guess. Can't think of any off the top of my head. Uh, Chris Morton in Gurney, Illinois, suggests that we're not quite done. Steve, I enjoyed your review of LastPass last week. One point I wish you would have made during the show is that password management tools should not be used as a license to abandon regular password updates. Password management tools like LastPass solve the problem of having to remember long and complex passwords, but they don't solve the problem of how your credentials are used and stored on the receiving end. You made good points in regard... You know, there's a great security assay that security uh, LastPass does in which it will tell you how many sites, for instance, you're using the same password on. Things like that. Really nice. I recommend running it. Yeah, it's built in a LastPass. I also did not mention that last week. But you, yeah. it's like a, a performer security test, they call it. And it it, uh, it does check to see how, how you're doing in terms right. of password length and them being different from site to site. That's where I really, uh, being lazy <clears throat> for years, have used the same password. On a lot of you know sites, I don't hey. care, right? A lot of our listeners have written to say, Pretty common. Gee, thanks, uh, I've, I fixed that. Yep. Yeah, I'm about to fix that. I was going to have to go through my whole password store and one by one visit all those sites and change the password to a LastPass generated password, but it's worth it. Um, You made good points in regard to how long it would take to brute force even a 10-character password, but this may lead some to believe that once they set a long enough password, there's no need to change it further. A defense in-depth, trust-no-one philosophy must consider the risks of password age and server-side compromises out of your own control. I won't get into the argument about how frequently passwords should be changed. I only wanted to make the point password updates should remain a part of good security practices that password management software does not eliminate the need for. Thanks for uh, security now. I enjoy your discussions every week, Chris Morton. Is there anything in LastPass that says this password is uh, six months old, you should be changing it, anything like that? Um, No. Not that I know of. And I guess they could put it in the database that they're storing on the user side. Um, so there let's might be look at a date. This. There might be a date in there somewhere. I should look. Uh, um, there's a date of use. So there's, there, there is definitely a date where they say the last time you used it, because right. I noticed I've, I, was, I was seeing like, you know, five seconds ago. It's like, oh, yeah, it knows. Um, so what's the vulnerability here? Um, it seems to me that the... The policy of forcing passwords to be changed periodically was 
I mean, and, we, and we've talked about it. Like, remember the the people I overheard at Starbucks yeah. who's, who was pissed off that his company made him change his passwords. And, and they also remembered the last four he had used. And so he just, you know, like defeated that whole thing by by quickly changing his password four times and going back to the one he originally had. Because he likes it, and, you know, screw those IT guys. So the danger is that the password would somehow leak over time and that, you know, you might write it down and someone might see it um, or you would tell it to someone just to like log into your account over the phone or, or something just one time. And then and then so it's sort of gotten away from you. So right. the idea is that, you know, changing it from time to time is, is a good thing. And and I agree. I mean, it's not a bad thing. Um the only real vulnerability I can see with something like this, where we've got LastPass filling it in, um, would be if 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 we still were using the same password on multiple sites, which LastPass helps us to no longer need to do because it, it's remembering these things for us. So that would be the obvious have, problem because if you were compromised on one site, then other sites would be compromised. Right. So we don't have that. The only only place I could really see them them th- th- there being a place for like safety from changing would be sort of as as Chris mentions the server side compromises out of our control. Mm. So a given a given site gets its password, you know, user account data stolen. And there's, you know, and maybe it's not used immediately. So like it, it, it leaks out or it's on someone's hard drive and their laptop gets stolen or whatever happens. So if some length of time later that user account database is exploited, if you had changed your password during that intervening time, from the time it had gotten stolen and it was being used, then obviously you're protected from from that exploitation. So, you know, I guess that would that would argue for us changing our passwords, you know, frequently on all the sites we visit, which is another level of pain, right. which is is substantial. Yes, more security. The the good thing is. We've at least, with LastPass, we've achieved real compartmentalization. That is, every site is now in its own little compartment. Uh, LastPass is doing the heavy lifting for us of, of memorizing and typing these things in. And boy, I can tell you, I mean, I'm spoiled and I've had so much feedback from our listeners saying, my God, this is just wonderful. Yeah. I mean, it's just logging me in, you know. Yeah, it's That's really nice. Spectacular, yeah. it really is. Yeah. So... I think Chris makes a good point. It was worth discussing. Uh, you know, it's it's one of these things where, yes, you could be more secure that way. Be aware of the liability. Um, that's not something I'm worrying about a lot because we have achieved compartmentalization, which I think is really the big win here. Yeah, and that's my task is to replace all my... Uh, you know, I have three or four passwords I use on a lot, a lot, a lot of sites. It's to replace all of those with generated 10 character passwords from LastPass so that I don't have to worry. It is here's to gibberish, baby. Yeah, here's to gibberish. <laughs> I love it. Trevor Harrison, Langley, British Columbia, wonders 
Why 63 characters for Wi-Fi, but 10 character passwords for websites? Hey, that's a good question. Mm. Stephen Leo, I've been listening since episode one. Do I now have the GRC University degree in security, even the master's degree? Yes, we give you that degree. It's worthless. It's not even a piece of paper. It's just our verbal assurance. Um, last week you said that 10 character passwords are sufficient for websites, computer logins, email accounts, and so on, even high security ones like banks. On the flip side, I remember you saying 63 character ASCII passwords are best for Wi-Fi as 20 characters or fewer passwords can easily be broken on secure Wi-Fi networks. If 20 character Wi-Fi passwords can easily be cracked, why then are 10 character passwords secure enough for websites, email accounts, and so on? Steve, have you gone off your rocker? <laughs> Trevor Harrison. Oh, Mac Wright. He's a regular in our chat room. Langley, ah. British Columbia. Please don't cancel Security Now as part of the five shows to be canceled. No, don't worry. Security Now is not on the block, and I'm not canceling five shows. So what do you say to Trevor? Well, um, the more characters in our passwords, the better. Yeah. That is a concept we understand well. And we understand that in terms of, of security, given, say, an alphabet of 63 characters, which is what we get if we do upper and lower case and the digits. Mm -hmm. um, is that right? This is, this is 62. Wait. 50, we have 26 A through Z, 26 uppercase, 26 lowercase. So that takes it to 52 plus the 10 digits, so it's 62. So 62 characters. So every character we add multiplies the number of possibilities by 62. And as we saw, that gets to be a very big number very quickly, such that 10 characters is whatever that was, 7.9 times 10 to the 17th or something. Um, and oh, by the way, Leo, you were right about, or we did hear, I heard from an, an astronomer who said, that was substantially more than the number of stars in the galaxy. Wow. He, he, he knew how many there were. That's and awesome. we were orders of magnitude more than that many. So I love having smart people listen to this show. That's great. So, yes, 10 characters is, is a lot. 63 is ridiculously high. My, my concern is that there are some trade-offs here. You may find yourself in a position where you you need to type in the password manually we've just been talking about situations where you know where LastPass is not available but you're using a LastPass generated password so we've also talked in the past about how incredibly difficult it is to enter in a 63 character password i mean i never was able to get my ipod touch on my own wi-fi network initially because there was no cut and paste in the early iPhone and iPod Touch. They added it later, and then I was able to, you know, to cut and paste and get myself online. It just wasn't possible for me to enter that 63 characters of gibberish. And one of the reasons 63 characters is like what I suggest with Wi-Fi is it is massive overkill. But it's like, hey... You never, the nature of Wi-Fi configuration is that you set it up in your access point once. You drop it into your various machines once, and then they remember it, and you just, you, you're never in a situation where you're having to enter it in 
at random times. So, and when friends come over, it's like, okay, um, you know, you, you can, you know, stick it in a in notepad on a, on, on a USB stick and give it to them and they can drop it in in order to get on your network. So my feeling is the model with Wi-Fi is different than the model with website login. And I doubt that most websites would accept a 63-character password. It's unfortunate because they ought to. They ought to accept an any-length password, which they then hash into a, you know, a 256-bit hash, and then that's the token that they use, in which case they don't care about um, password length. That is, it, there, there's no practical maximum, but they typically don't. And, you know, many passwords, yeah, if, if you're logging in and watching yourself type, you get to a certain point and it stops accepting more characters. So it's got a fixed limit on, on the web form for how many you can type in. So, so I chose 10 as an example in last week's LastPass um, podcast because it's, it's a large number. We saw how large it is. It's convenient if you ever had to type it in manually. And it's going to be accepted by default by the majority, if not all, website logons. Mm-hmm. Whereas 63 characters or even 40 or even 30 could probably find yourself getting into trouble where it's just, you know, websites won't accept it. It's just more than they've got allocated for their passwords, unfortunately. Well, and you have the luxury of kind of brute forcing uh, Wi-Fi passwords in a way that you don't usually on websites. Yes, that's the other very good point is that um, when I, I think when I was talking about 20, we were looking at the we were looking at the idea of an offline attack where that's the one known right. vulnerability is you could take some encrypted traffic home with you and you could then have a bunch of, you know, PS3 number crunching things running that <laughs> 4096 iteration WPA right. algorithm. And it might have been WEP, in fact. It might have been very earlier on. Like, you know, we've been doing the podcast for five years and WEP was always in trouble, but it's it's become substantially weaker over time during the the life of this podcast. And so, you know, WEP's architecture was much weaker. And so it's much easier to brute force attack WEP than WPA because they really made the WPA algorithm much more processing intensive in order to generate the the key from the password. So um, I think it was an offline brute force attack where 20 characters, you know, you, you could use huge computing resources and there, you know, in some feasible length of time. And as I remember, even then it was a long time, but that's very different from brute forcing across a web, a web connection where, you know, you, you submit your password and you kind of go, mm-hmm, yeah, da, da, da. you know, you're waiting for... You can't do you know, millions a second that way. Many, you may, exactly, yeah, yeah, precisely. Yeah. Steve, I think unless uh, I'm missing something, that's all of them. That's, we did our... We, 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 we got for them. the first time in a long time, got through all of them. <laughs> Leo should start on time more often. Steve Gibson is the host uh, at GRC.com. What a great website for anybody interested in this. There's some great discussions there. Of course, Security Now lives there. Not only the full 
high-quality uh, audio of the show, but also 16-kilobit audio for people who are bandwidth-impaired. Steve makes that available himself, does all the work on that. Uh, he also uh, pays for transcriptions, which are available at grc.com and show notes and all that. We do video now of the show, and you can get the video and the high-quality audio uh, at twit.tv slash sn, or, of course, subscribe on iTunes and the Zoom Marketplace and all those other great places where you get video and audio. grc.com is also the home of SpinRight, the world's finest hard drive maintenance utility. You must have it. Get it. Don't even ask me. Just get it. Just get it. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> and uh, many other freebies uh, like Shields Up and uh, all his other great programs on there. Soon, I'm sure, some more stuff. I know you're working on Yeah, I had a, a bit of a setback Uh-oh. with the DNS benchmark. I actually finally took it to version 1.0, and that lasted about a day. Yeah, of course. Uh, the yeah. hubris of, of you know, saying after, 1.0. Uh, after waiting like nine months before I did that, I then took a look for the first time at Google's name bench DNS benchmark. And it's got some problems, frankly. I asked a bunch of people in our news groups to give it a try, and it almost universally crashed everyone's Ooh, network. Yikes. But one thing it what one, one thing it has is this phenomenal list of about I, for some reason I'm remembering 4300, but I think it's more than that. Resolvers all over the world and it tries to find the uh, from that list the ones that are fastest for you so what i did was i thought okay i gotta figure out what how i think how i feel about this because i had a, a like a list of maybe i think of maybe like 80 and they were good resolvers for the u.s but it was u.s centric and so i I hacked a version of the benchmark. The benchmark normally limits you to, te- to testing 200. I figured that's going to be enough for anybody. But I had, to, I had to have it test 40. I think I, actually the number I have now is 4,800. So I, I, so I set it to like 5,000. had to completely change data structures and things around, but I did. And then I asked a bunch of the users in the news groups to try this. You know, the, I called it the megaplex.ini, which was all of these resolvers. Every single one of us found DNS resolvers we had never known about before that were faster than any ones we had ever seen. Really? So in this incredible list that Google had were secret gems. I mean, it knew of like resolvers near me, Hmm. like geographically near me, like Cox has one and somebody else had a different one and it's like, and it's like, whoa. And so I thought, okay, I'm, I've got to do something about this. So I'm now completely re-engineering, the, I mean, like in the middle of it, this the way we handle the resolver list building so that GRC will maintain a master list. And, when, and then part of the setup for the benchmark will be you test, the, the user will, will dynamically receive this list from GRC, which they'll, they will then run through a process, a sort of a preliminary benchmark to select the best 50 out of this much larger list. And then that will be their custom list um, from which against which they will do the full benchmark. So it's a little more involved, but the cool, I mean, the upside is virtually every single person who runs this will learn something new. They will find resolvers they never knew about 
that are faster than anything they've ever seen before. Wow, that's really so neat. It's going to be very cool. That's yeah, really it's back neat. with the drawing board, but it's going to be worth it when well, I when I come out the other end. No kidding. Uh, yeah, some real utility, more additional utility. That's kind of the idea, I guess. Really, of benchmarking is figuring out what's the best. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and I wanted like I want to surprise people, so <laughs> now I can. Yeah. Well, <laughs> good. Steve Gibson, GRC.com. We'll see you next week. We do this show live Wednesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, 1800 UTC at live.twit.tv. You're invited to watch live and participate in our chat room. Always a lot of fun, about 800 people in there usually at uh, irc.twit.tv. Steve, we'll see you next week on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.